0: Will you take the infallible record of the Word of God and turn to Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. We continue to make our way through this amazing letter that speaks so clearly to so many doctrinal issues that are foundational to the Christian life. This morning, we want to focus our attention primarily on verses 23 through 25. But once again, I'd like to get a running start so you hear it in context. So let's begin with verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one also hope for what he sees? But If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In verse 23, it speaks of the believer groaning within himself, waiting for something to happen, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And I must confess that in the early years of my life, I could not relate to that text very well. Frankly, I looked forward to heaven in kind of a dreamy way. Maybe you can identify with that. I think I wanted a new truck probably more than heaven, if I was real honest. I really wasn't all that excited about being forever liberated from my sin and all of the physical infirmities of life. Because when you're young, you don't see your sin that much, and you don't have many physical infirmities. But as you get older, all of that changes. Heaven, for many people, even to this day, is just not all that appealing, especially in our affluent culture, especially among our young children, Many of you young adults, most prefer a new iPad to heaven. For many people, sin is just not that serious. Salvation is just not that priceless. The Savior is just not that precious. Heaven is just not that glorious. And certainly hell is not all that hideous. But with age comes pain and reality sets in, years of seeing the effects of sin in your own life, in your body, in the lives of those that you love, and all of the pains in your body begins to herald your own departure from this life. And little by little, all of the shiny things of life lose their luster. You stop chasing all of the fleeting pleasures of this world. And with every final farewell of, of loved ones and friends, you long more and more to leave this world of sin and sorrow and shame. And for the few that truly walk with Christ, their sorrow over their own personal sin and the sins of others begins to increase. They begin to loathe more and more the corruption of the flesh and all that that implies. They hate the wickedness of this world. After a while, you start longing for rest, don't you? You begin to really long for something different. Long to see Christ glorified. Long to see sin and Satan and death forever vanquished. We identify more and more with what Habakkuk said in chapter 2 and verse 14, longing for that day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We begin to echo the sentiments of, of Paul. You remember in Second Timothy 4 and verse 4 and following, he spoke to Timothy about his impending death and he was lamenting about those who, quote, will turn away their ears from the truth They will turn aside to myths, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Then he says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Loved, literally, His shining forth. The shining forth of His glorious return. And dear friends, in those words, we have a great example of verse 23 of Romans 8, of what it means to groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The term groan in the original language literally means to sigh. A nonverbal, noisy yearning. It's to exhale in frustration, if that makes sense. But also, in this text, to exhale with an eager longing for the end of the state of weakness and sorrow. I find myself doing this more often as I get older, don't you? The sighs are getting longer and louder and more frequent, especially when I turn on the news. And then that sigh is quickly followed up with, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This, dear friends, is the Christian's Lamentation. The title of the second part of my discourse to you this morning. Now, mind you, this isn't giving up. This isn't throwing in the towel, but it's rather a godly expression of frustration combined with hope. Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can't you sense the tension there? He goes on to say, but I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So every believer is going to experience this kind of tension. And with every believer, they will increasingly groan as life goes on, as they mature in Christ, especially the more you become fully engaged in the battle for the truth. Now, let's remember the context here. Paul has been explaining the marvelous benefits of justification what it means for God to declare the sinner righteous based upon the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the theme of chapter 8 is the assurance of salvation. And that assurance is based on the assertion that he makes at the beginning of the chapter that there is now no condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus. And as you read it all in context, it's as if he is saying, yes, don't be discouraged by your sin and the suffering that you must endure in this period between your justification and your glorification, because, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he goes on to explain how and why things got this bad and how and why Things will get so much better for those who are justified. And in the context of all of this, we understand what I would call the Christian's lamentation. How we groan inwardly in this life in certain hope that someday things will be radically different. Now, Paul explains this by expressing two doctrines, primarily. We looked at the first one last week, and that is... The creation, slavery to corruption. Now, let me remind you of this again this morning before we look at the second component of all of this with respect to the believer. In verses 19 through 22, we are reminded that the biblical doctrine of salvation is inextricably linked to a literal interpretation of biblical history pertaining to the creation account as recorded in Genesis. Very important concept for you to keep in mind. Paul has already made this connection, connection in chapter 5. Remember there he revealed how by one man, one man, namely Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. In verse 14, at the end, he says that Adam was a type of Christ. In other words, God intended for Adam to correspond or resemble Christ. Adam was the type, Christ the antitype. Even as Adam's sin was imputed to all men because he is our representative and all of that resulted in death, so too Christ's righteousness is imputed to all men who believe in him because he represents all believers in righteousness, and of course that results in life. Now, here again in chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, we see the importance of a literal interpretation of the historical account of creation and of man's fall and the curse upon creation and so forth. So we must understand that what happens to man will also happen to creation in some measure. Indeed, one day creation will enjoy a new birth, a regeneration. And this corresponds to man's spiritual new birth and the ultimate enjoyment of a new heaven and a new earth that we will experience. Now, by the way, as a footnote, there are two reasons why we would believe here at this church that we should separate from other professing believers. One is on the basis of the gospel. If somebody preaches a different gospel, what did Paul say in Galatians 1? Let them be accursed. The second reason is on the authority of Scripture. And here is a great example of this. We are to contend earnestly for the faith, Jude tells us. And those who would deny, for example, a literal interpretation of the account of Genesis in order to somehow appease the scientific community, the evolutionary mindset of our day. When they do that, they ultimately undermine the doctrines of salvation, not to mention many other doctrines. So it's very important that you understand this. And if you deny the authority of Scripture one place, you're probably going to do it in many others. And we see people doing this with respect to the issues pertaining to homosexuality, women in leadership, um, church discipline, all kinds of things. So, again, a literal understanding of biblical history is crucial in understanding the doctrine of salvation. And I might add that this is why Satan is tireless in his efforts to attack the doctrine of the authority of Scripture in the church today. This is why we must stand firm, and we will. So, creation is tied to man. Man. When man fell, it fell. And here in this text, Paul personifies um, God's animate and non-rational inanimate creation as being in distress because of the, of the, the, the curse that God placed upon man and upon creation. He subjected it to futility. In other words, it's no longer able to reach its goal, which is ultimately to bring glory to God. And therefore, he depicts... This part of creation is earnestly expecting a particular event to occur, an event that will radically change its current state. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, the apocalypsis, the uncovering. The unveiling of that glorious day when the curse will be removed, when Christ returns in His glory with His saints, when He renovates this earth, when He returns it again to Edenic splendor. In Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with Him in glory. That will be the day we return, when we will be revealed. Zechariah 14.9, the prophet tells us, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. So this is what creation is on its tiptoes looking for. Paradise was once lost. One day it will be regained because of Christ. When He returns to to judge the nations, who, by the way... But by that time, we'll be under the rule of the Antichrist. It will be when he comes and delivers his beloved enemy, Israel, from their oppressors and frankly from their sins and reconciles them finally unto himself. Today we see the Muslim hordes surrounding God's covenant people trying to annihilate Israel. We see the rest of the pagan world, including the United States of America, Somewhat passively resigned to see this happen, even as the religious people did in Hitler's day. Indeed, the world is being prepared for the Antichrist. Our world is being prepared for a one-world government, for a one-world religion, what Revelation 17.5 describes as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. By the way, this is what happens when wolves and sheep's clothing ascend the sacred desk of a church and they begin to compromise on the gospel and they deny the authority of scripture. This is where you go. But soon, as we look at the prophetic literature, as we look at all that's going around, going on in the world around us, we realize that the cup of divine wrath is about to flow over. And when that happens, according to Scripture, the nostrils of the Almighty God will flare and the Almighty Sovereign will hand the seven-sealed scroll of judgment to the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Lord Jesus Christ will return in power and great glory and vengeance With his raptured saints, he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will pour out his judgment upon this earth. Then he will establish his millennial kingdom. Beloved, this is the day that creation is longing to see. The millennial kingdom is that consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. Then at the end of the Messianic age, Jesus promised that heaven and earth is going to pass away. We are told in Scripture that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. By the way, I never tire of thinking about these scenes. Because, beloved, we as the redeemed will witness them all. We will see our Savior face to face, the one in whom we have been hidden. And one day when He returns, we as His raptured saints will return with Him. We will be revealed. We will reign with Him on a renovated earth. And then we are going to see Him uncreate the heavens and the earth and recreate a new one. Absolutely astounding. No wonder Paul would say the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's coming. So, having explained the creation's slavery to corruption and its anxious and eager longing to be set free from from all of this, he then sets forth another important doctrine, secondly, the Christian's perseverance in hope in verses 23 and 25. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. Notice what he says, verse 23, and not only this, in other words, all that we've been talking about here, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, like the natural creation, here we see that every believer is fully aware of the corruption of sin in his life as well as the staggering manifestations of sin in the world around us, the world in which we live. And I might add that if you're not aware of sin in your life and how sin manifests itself in your life, you're either unsaved or you have so grieved the Spirit of God by your self-righteous pride and self-centered living that you've really lost your sense of discernment. And so, therefore, you're not going to be groaning much to get away from all of this. And if left unchecked, you will become increasingly skilled at spotting the speck in your brother's eye and being utterly blind to the log in your own. And eventually, the Holy Spirit, by His grace, if you truly belong to the Lord, He will get your attention. He will sanctify you. Every believer has a God-given sensitivity to sin. If you're like me, many times you learn that the hard way. And then as you really see your sin by God's grace, you will mourn over it more and more. You will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then you will join the ranks of those who groan within themselves over their sin. You will lament over the reality of that your body is still incarcerated in this unredeemed humanness, and you will long for that day of ultimate emancipation. So we should all pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to see our sin, how it impacts other people, so that we would confess it and repent of it before it wreaks havoc in our life. Otherwise, you will become what I call a hopper. It's not a biblical term, it's a biblical concept. A hopper is one that lacks discernment and will hop from one fad to the next, one ear-tickling guru to the next. They will hop from one relationship to the next, one marriage to the next, one church to the next, always searching, never able to come to the truth of their own life, always blaming everything on somebody else. So, beloved, be suspect of your spirituality. Constantly measure your life by the standard of Scripture. You will recall that David succumbed to his his lust and sinned with Bathsheba during a season of of spiritual complacency. He was overconfident. He didn't see it. Then you will recall God confronted him through Nathan, and then he lamented in genuine repentance And in Psalm 38, 8, he says, I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. The term groan is a Hebrew verb that that means to make a a deep, inarticulate sound conveying pain and despair. It's the type of groan that would result if somebody placed a heavy weight on upon your chest it's the sound of deep oppression and sorrow that sound that translates into what was I thinking oh God forgive me it was during a season of discipleship and service and having intimate fellowship with the Lord that you will recall Peter became overconfident about his unwavering allegiance to Jesus and then he went out and denied the Lord three times. And we read in Matthew 26 at the end that he went out and wept bitterly. Beloved, you must remember that that your groaning for glory will always be in proportion to your awareness of sin, to your groaning and mourning over your own sin first. And then with all that you see in the world Paul repeatedly acknowledged his frustration of indwelling sin. Remember, in chapter 7, verse 14 of Romans, Romans, he said, I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. And in verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And then you will recall in verse 23, he described the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, meaning his flesh. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? In other words, who is going to set me free from the clutches of my sinful nature? But we can be glad knowing that his laments did not end there. Not in some hopeless despair, but rather in joyous deliverance. In verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then the hallelujah chorus of of forgiveness and grace and emancipated living, breaks forth in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. But, and here's the bad news, we will not experience the fullness of this promise until the redemption of the body. So until then, we groan within ourselves and wait eagerly. But will you also notice a very encouraging description of believers that Paul gives in verse 23? He says, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. It could be translated the first fruits which is the Spirit. This This is a marvelous concept. The metaphorical imagery here of the first fruits really depicts the first stage of something else that is certain to come. And in this context, it's a foretaste of the blessing of God in his work of redemption that will be brought to its intended climax. And of course, this is in keeping with Paul's theme of the assurance of salvation that we see all through Romans 8. Now, first fruit has basically the same meaning as the term pledge that is used in other passages in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 21, we read, He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. Then he goes on to say, Who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Literally, as a deposit which guarantees that the full amount is going to be paid. That's the idea of the term. Now, this speaks both of Christ's unending, mediatorial, incessory work uh, as our great high priest who, who steadfastly secures our inheritance, but it also speaks of the indwelling Spirit of God who is our pledge. Our indwelling guarantee, if you will. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5, he says that he gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. He says in Ephesians 1, at the end of verse 13, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The term seal speaks of a stamp of ownership. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. Of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. So the Holy Spirit is the stamp that we are the possession of God. And beloved, this is not some ethereal, abstract doctrine. This is something that we experience. You will recall what Paul said in verses 16 and 17 of Romans 8. That the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He goes on to say, and if children, heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now think about this for a second. Do you not enjoy the fruit of the Spirit that we see listed in Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Don't you see some measure, measure of that in your life? Well, of course you do. Do you not find your heart overflowing with praise when you reflect upon the doctrines of grace and and when you sing and you worship and you commune with the Lord in prayer? Of course you do. Do you not love to fellowship with other believers? Do you not long for the life-giving, life-sustaining milk of the Word of God? Of course you do. Do you not love to tell others about the gospel of grace are you not willing to suffer for Christ, come what may, knowing the glory that awaits you? Well, of course you do. All of these things and many more are marks of those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. These are all samples of a spiritual harvest that will one day be fully realized in glory. As I was meditating upon this passage the great hymn came to my mind. The chorus, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit. Washed in His blood. So, beloved, this is the current experience of the first fruits of the Spirit. But, oh, how much more the harvest one day. Now, to suggest... That a man could lose his salvation implies that somehow the sealing work of the Spirit of God is deficient. It would also suggest that his pledge really cannot be trusted. Moreover, we would see, therefore, that he is only a potential first fruit, subject to the will of man, not of God. And it would certainly also reject Jesus' very clear statement concerning our security in John 6.37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is why Paul would say in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What an enormous comfort. All of this must have been to those early saints. And what a comfort it is to all of us who continue to struggle with our sin, right? To know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To know, as Paul said in in Romans 8 9, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That we experience the first fruits of the Spirit. The beginning of what is certain to come, for which we groan, for which we eagerly await, namely our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And what an encouragement this great doctrine must have been to Peter, who was so profoundly aware of his sin, who would later write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then he closes and says, In this you greatly rejoice. Absolutely. And how sad it is to see Christian people struggle with their assurance of salvation, many times clinging to certain passages of Scripture that they misinterpret, as if they're trying to do everything they can to come up with passages that would say, well, yeah, you can lose your salvation and you really can't have any assurance, as if they're desperate to believe such an error. Then what happens is they end up joining Christian and his friend Hopeful. Remember in Pilgrim's Progress? Remember they were seized by giant despair. They were thrown into Doubting Castle because of a defective faith. They were uncertain about the object of their faith. They had lost their understanding of the securing work of the triune God thinking that somehow that must be deficient that somehow their salvation was up to them and then you will recall that giant despair had a wife whose name was distrust and he she insisted that he go in there and beat christian and hopeful without mercy to ridicule them and cast insults at them to do everything he could cause them to, to mourn with bitter lamentations over having lost their salvation. How tragic to see people fall into this error. And you could only pray that somehow they would come to the same place that Christian and hopeful did in the great allegory. You will remember finally when the misery was so great, Christian was ready to, to commit suicide. And then we read how he began to pray for discernment. And they prayed together all night. And then Bunyan says this, quote, Then Christian, a short time before daylight, became astounded and passionately exclaimed, What a fool I am! Here I I lie in a stinking dungeon when I could be walking in complete liberty. I have a key in my pocket called Promise that I am sure will open any lock and doubting castle. End quote. In other words, i got a key here that says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I I have the indwelling Spirit of God as my seal and as my pledge. I experience the first fruits of all of this. What am I doing moaning here? As if I've lost everything. Hebrews chapter 6, the writer there tells us, beginning in verse 17, in the same God, and the same God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things, which, by the way, refers to God's promise as well as his oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. He goes on to say, we, have, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have, and I love this, as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. This is part of the key that Christian and hopeful realized they had in their pocket. And beloved, this is the hope that we have in the Spirit. This is the first installment of our salvation that we groan over. Notice in verse 23, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, as God's inherited children, we know biblically that we are eagerly awaiting the full measure of our inheritance, the full accomplishment of our redemption. We are anxiously awaiting the perfect freedom of a sinless body, uh, a sinless universe, again, of which the indwelling spirit is our first fruit, the blessed foretaste of glory, the guarantee of God's promise. Now, he speaks here of the redemption of our body. As we look at Scripture, we learn that our souls, our inner being, has already been perfectly outfitted for heaven. It's an amazing thought. We're fully redeemed. We've been uh, made new creatures in Christ, right? The old things have passed away. The new things have come. Second Peter 1.4, we've become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. But not so our body. That's another issue altogether. You see, our souls remain incarcerated in this shell of unredeemed humanness. Earlier, Paul explained in Romans 6, verses 5 and 6, that if we, referring to believers, have become united with Him, referring to Christ, in the likeness of His death, Certainly, we shall also, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So you might think of it this way. We are holy seeds in an unholy shell waiting to be freed. This is why Paul said in Romans 7, verse 15, I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Boy, can't you all identify with that? I get so frustrated over that. Verse 22, he says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Again, we can all identify with this. This is the battle between the flesh and the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Remember in verse 17, he says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. There's a battle that goes on there. And the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. I cannot imagine how wonderful it will be someday, when that battle is forever ended. So until then, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, And I love this next phrase, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You know, it's fun to speculate on what our glorified body will be like, but frankly, that's all it really is, is speculation. It exceeds the limits of our imagination. Because it exceeds the reality of our experience. How can you explain something you've never experienced? We know that heaven will be a place, biblically, we see that it will be a place that will transcend uh, the limits of time and space, that there will be no gravity or electromagnetic force like we're accustomed to. It's going to be a perfect universe that, is not water based, and yet we're still going to somehow have uh, a body that functioned like Christ's glorified body, not limited to time, not limited to space. Paul speaks about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. He says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? He's not very seeker sensitive here. He says, You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. The analogy here is that of a seed. I did a little research. I found that currently scientists believe that if you take... All of the plants in the world, you end up with about 350,000 that they have identified. And they believe there are many others that they have not identified. Now, if you were to take just those 350,000 seeds, lay them all on a table, mix them all up, and then pick up a handful of them, and look at all of those seeds, would you be able to tell what that seed is going to look like when it's fully grown? No way possible. Paul's point is our physical bodies are like these seeds. You cannot merely look at at the seed and from that determine what it's going to be like when it's fully glorified. Certainly, I hope it's going to be a lot better looking than it is now. But then he adds something fascinating in verse 39. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. But there's one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. In other words, although there there are enormous variations in the animal kingdom, uh, without exception, because of their genetic code, every living species will produce the same species. Like will always produce like. You can't take, For example, a horse and a cow and breed them together and come up with a whatever. Or a dog and a cat. I mean, always you're going to see the same species. And so, likewise, we will ultimately bear the resemblance of our current state. And yet, like the plant and animal world, the variations will be myriad. Isn't that clarifying? Isn't that helpful? Now you know what you're going to look like, right? He elaborates on this more. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So again, with the staggering variation of all that God has created, it is impossible to guess what we will finally look like, what we will finally be like. But he does, does tell us that our glorified body is going to include at least four things. Notice verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead, he says. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised and, here's number one, an imperishable body. In other words, it's going to be a body that's not subject to illness, not subject to death. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in, number two, glory. It's going to be imperishable. It's also going to be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. There's number three. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a, number four, a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In other words, it's not going to be a body that's limited to the realm of the material, like Christ's resurrected body. You will recall that he could appear suddenly, uh, even in rooms with locked doors, and then he could, he could vanish just as quickly. And yet, at the same time, he broke bread and he ate. And uh, remember, he, he ate fish and cooked fish and distributed food. People could touch him. Are those sighs that I hear? Don't you long for that? Verse 45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Oh, dear Christian, this is the promise. This is the certain hope in which we persevere. Now back to Romans 8. As we close this this morning, this is verse 24. Paul says, For in hope... We have been saved. Now, again, keep in mind, this is the hope of absolute certainty, of unwavering certainty. This is the hope that was described earlier in Hebrews 6. The hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. This is also the, quote, helmet, the hope of salvation in First Thessalonians 5.8. This is the eager hope that we have. We're waiting for that which is certain to be accomplished. Then he goes on to explain in verse 24, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? Obviously, he's saying if we could see and experience our glorification right now, <laughs> hoping for it would be absurd. So obviously, we're, we're hoping for that which is going to come. And what is the, what is the basis? What is the surety of that hope? Was the promises of God. All these things that Paul has declared over and over in so many ways. Promises that are even more certain than the things that we can see, than the things that we can experience. Remembering that salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, a term that literally means unwavering endurance, Without losing confidence, if we hope for what we do not see with this confident and continual patience, he says we wait eagerly for it. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Titus 2 verse 13. We're looking for the blessed hope. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Oh, dear child of God, keep groaning with all your pain, with all your sorrow, with all your frustration, your persecution. Keep sighing in frustration and anticipation, knowing that someday you're going to be liberated from all of your sin and your physical infirmities, and you're going to see Christ, the lover of your souls, face to face. So with perseverance, wait eagerly for it, and do as Paul, or as Peter said in First Peter three, verse 14, "Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for what? the hope that is in you. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these eternal truths. May we meditate upon them. May they bring great joy to our hearts as we continue to sigh in frustration over this world of sin and shame and sorrow and death, but also sigh with that great anticipation when you will come and deliver us from it. And Lord, especially we pray for those who may be within the sound of my voice that know nothing of the Savior. Lord, as always, we plead with you that you will overwhelm them with conviction. May they see the sword of divine justice looming over their head. May they realize that the wrath of God abides upon them, that they must repent and cry out to you, For the mercy that you will grant to those who are broken over their sin and trust in you as their only hope of salvation. Lord, we pray that you will grant this to the praise of your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit OliveTreeResources.org.